following prescribed is transcribed. Calling all stations. Clear the air lanes. Clear all air lanes for the big broadcast. Well, hi again, folks. You have found it again, the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. And once again, I'm your host, Sean, and I'll be taking you on a trip down, uh, well, I wouldn't say memory lane, well, maybe memory lane, because, hey, memories are memories, whether they're minutes old or decades old. But, uh, of course, in this case, we're not going back very far. The games that we're going to be talking about, eh, they're within the past year, so... (laughs) Anyway, uh, this is the last episode before Halloween, so uh, I figured there'd be a little bit of a Halloween theme. Well, I don't know if it's so much of a theme, but there's a little bit of a Halloween vibe. Well, that'll happen later on in the episode. In fact, I'm going to tell you right now, it does get very provincial. I'm going to talk about uh, something that's very specific to, well, at least it started very specific to Chicago, and it's something I grew up knowing, well grow up, uh, def- defining growing up. I don't know. I don't know. I'm, I don't know if I'm grown up yet, but, um, I remember hearing Ferg talk about stuff that he remembered from when he was younger. And I really enjoyed hearing that about like what was going on in his town and all that. So I figured, you know what, this, maybe some people would enjoy that from my perspective as well. So if you do great, if you don't, then I'm sorry, but, uh, let's see. In, uh, since I last talked to you, uh, I've had a birthday and, um, let's see, my birthday was on a Tuesday. Tuesday birthdays are just boring. I love it when my birthday happens like on a Monday or a Friday, because I usually take my birthday off this year. Instead of taking my birthday off, I waited till the Friday afterwards and took that day off and had a three day weekend. What did I do those three days? Well, I mentioned a uh, previous episode. I had my uh, high school reunion. And, um, I, I don't quite know what to make of it. There were people I was thrilled to see. There were people that uh, made me think, okay, yeah, now I remember why I didn't hang out with these people in the first place. (laughs) And, uh, there are a couple of people I talked to that I really wish I did hang out with more in high school, but, uh, I guess it's not too late really, but, uh, oh, and, uh, as a birthday present, my wife got me a TVB gone pro, um, in case you don't know what that is, uh, well, I learned how to solder or solder if you're not uh, a United States resident. I learned how to do that in 2012. I'd always wanted to learn, but uh, I never did. But I was at a hacker convention in New York City. It's called Hope Hackers on Planet Earth, and it's run by 2600 Magazine. Um, And yeah, the reason I first found out about 2600 was I saw the title, and you probably know what I thought at first. And I picked it up. I was like, wait, what's this have to do with Atari? And then I thought about it again. It's like, oh, 2600 must be referring to that uh, 2600 hertz frequency of the uh, Captain Crunch whistle. And sure enough, I was right. <laughs> but but basically, there's a guy, Mitch Altman, who does all kinds of little hardware gadget hacks and things. And uh, his company is always at Hope. They're always doing workshops and things. And they sell like little do-it-yourself kits for different d- devices. Like there's this one thing called trip glasses. And uh, what it is, it's basically kind of like a uh, an opaque pair of goggles you stick over your eyes, and there's an earbud, I think. And what you do is you put on the glasses, you close your eyes, and embedded in each of the lenses is a red LED, and it just blinks frequently. 
and uh, there's like a little buzzing that comes out of the earbud, and the buzzing is in this uh, frequency that um, supposedly triggers a, a, a lot of your senses in your brain, and the uh, the red LEDs, like you can actually kind of barely pick them up with your eyes closed, and the the blinking of the LEDs kind of makes you see like different colors and stuff. So uh, you're basically the idea is if you want to have like a pretty cool little trippy experience, put those things on for about 10 minutes. Uh, I tried them for a couple of minutes. I was like, Ooh, I can see how this could be pretty cool. But one of the things that they're very well known for, at least in the hacker community is a little device called TV be gone. What it is, it's basically just a universal remote control. Whose only purpose is literally to turn TV sets off. What you do is you push a button and in the IR port, it shoots out numeric codes for different TV models, starting with the most popular model, going all the way down to the least popular. And it basically sends those codes. You have to aim the TV be gone at the TV until it turns off. And uh, Mitch Altman said that the reason he did that is because he just gets so tired of seeing TVs all over the place, wherever he goes. And he just wants to turn them off so he's not bothered by TV sets and maybe encourage people to just, well, I don't know, talk or something. <laughs> And of course, people use those for pranks as well. And uh, I think at a hacker convention in Germany, some bar owner actually like did a citizen's arrest on some kid who uh, who broke away from the convention and used a TV be gone on his TV. And the judge threw the case out, ruling that there's no law against turning TVs off. But it's a fun thing to use. Uh, I'm not necessarily saying I would cause any ruckus with it, but I have observed, <clears throat> maybe not, I'm not necessarily saying from my own activities that, um, certain menus at certain fast food places use, uh, TVs that can be turned off by remote controls. <laughs> but, uh, the first thing I ever soldered was a do it yourself TV be gone. And well, mine suddenly stopped working. So, uh, I ordered another one a couple of months ago and I soldered one thing in the wrong place and I couldn't desolder it. So it just sat there. And uh, before I could order another one, my wife actually got me a pre-made TV be gone pro it's in the shape of an iPhone. So people think you're just using an iPhone. It's really cool. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that, that was uh, a little bit about my birthday. And uh, by the way, I got some birthday wishes from a lot of people. Thank you so much, folks. It's really kind of you. And, uh, I'm recording this introduction on Sunday, October 15th, and uh, it's been a very weird weekend, really, mainly because here in the Chicago area, it's been very, very, very rainy, and uh, actually today, the rain went away, and the sun has been trying to break out all day, uh, not terribly successfully, but the rain stopped, and it was pretty bad out here. I was actually supposed to go to kind of an Atari party in uh, West Dundee, which is where Underground Retrocade is. So I went to Underground Retrocade for a couple hours, and I had the best Donkey Kong game I ever had, and it was surprisingly on the hard ROM. I got um, over 132,000 on that, and I added 11,000 points to my Arcade Frenzy high score. The trick with Frenzy, and I guess Berserk too, is... Don't allow yourself to get in the diagonal firing path of any of the robots because it is so hard to avoid the diagonal fire. At least for me, it is. But once I figured out that I should just stay away from those diagonal firing paths, I'm fine. And sure enough, boom, I was going on and on and on and on. I kept hearing the bonus life sound. It's a very annoying sound, by the way. 
So I guess for the two and a half hours I was at Underground Retrocade, it was a pretty worthwhile investment, actually. It was a good return on investment. So 7.30 p.m. happened, and uh, I had to go over to the Atari party at, at, uh, at a friend's house. And, uh, and a friend who's also been a listener of this podcast and Pie Factory podcast for a long time. So I get over there, and the, the street that leads to his street is flooded. And I didn't know this until I actually got there and found that uh, my car stopped moving and would not move and shorted out and everything. And I just had the thing fixed, too. I was like, oh, no. It was just in the shop literally hours before that happened. And I'm thinking, oh, man, I'm going to I'm going to be so dead when I get home and when I get on star to call a tow truck for me. <laughs> but um, it was it was freaky because uh, I couldn't really tell that the place was flooded because the street goes downhill and I didn't know that. And I suddenly found myself in standing water. I was like, oh, no. But I was able to get the car to kind of struggle to start up, and it was able to back up a few feet, and then it shorted out again, repeat the process until I was no longer standing in water, and suddenly the car worked again. So I was able to drive it and get uh, back home to Chicago safely. And it's bad because he was trying to get an Atari party going for a long time. <laughs> but, uh, man, better luck next time. Uh, so it was it's just been crazy, really, I guess. Other Atari stuff, um, I made a uh, casing for my Mateos cart. I took an old uh, Pole Position 2 cartridge shell. I had a spare Pole Position 2 cartridge I wasn't using, so I followed my friend Jimmy G's instructions on how to uh, turn one of those into a Mateos cartridge shell, and it worked really well, actually. Took my Dremel 3000 and carved out the pieces that I needed to carve out to make the uh, Mateos cart fit, and um, I think I did a pretty decent job. And, um, that's all I have for my own personal Atari stuff right now. Oh, um, I should mention this. I mentioned in the previous two episodes that Froggy has not yet been released. And unfortunately it's not going to get a release until at least early 2018. And, uh, I hope that does happen. I really hope that happens in early 2018 because really, especially the pokey version, Froggy is going to be amazing in my opinion, the best arcade port that has happened on the Atari 7800. I think you can get the ROM on Atari Age, actually, if you go into the proper discussion threads. But try it out, especially if you have a way to uh, do the pokey sound. It's it's just fantastic. But until then, I guess uh, you have a new podcast episode to listen to. And uh, so let's just move on to this episode's featured games, Fat Axel. And Sick Pickles. Both Fat Axel and Sick Pickles have something in common. Well, they have a couple of things in common. First of all, they are programmed in 7800 Basic, and they are both clones of the Atari 2600 game Fast Food by Telesis. And I'll tell you a little bit about fast food. I'm not going to get into a deep dive. If you want to hear a fairly deep dive, as deep as you can get with that game, I highly, highly, highly recommend you listen to episode 92 of the Atari 2600 Game by Game podcast. Ferg did a good job of uh, digging into fast food about two and a half years ago. And of course, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. 
fast food for the Atari 2600 was designed by Don Ruffcorn, and it was released in 1982. According to the manual, the object of the game is to, and I quote, get fatter, consume as many calories as you can before you get your fill of purple pickles, and the snack bar closes. So, you control Mighty Mouth, and Mighty Mouth is a flapping pair of lips moving around the screen while food is being thrown from left to the right inside a snack bar and mighty mouth will eat any food object with which he makes contact and he must avoid purple pickles as mighty mouth eats the words you're getting fatter scroll down the screen every so often and the game ends when mighty mouth eats six purple pickles and at that point the word burp scrolls up the screen followed by a closed sign scrolling down the screen your score is measured in calories and, of course, your goal is to get as many calories as possible. Different food items will produce different calorie counts. A green pickle is one calorie, a root beer is three calories, cola is four calories, soda pop is five calories. Um, what's the difference between cola and soda pop? Well, in the real world, cola, by definition, has to be made from cola nuts, K-O-L-A. And uh, soda, I guess, just has to have sodium in it or something, uh... Uh, yeah, fun fact for you, Coca-Cola is so-called because it uses coca leaves and cola nuts. But in terms of the game fast food, the difference between cola and soda, I'm guessing the cola is the one with the C on it. Uh, you get five calories for a hot dog. Oh, God, if only that were real life. Six calories for a hamburger. Good Lord, if that were only real life. An ice cream bar or a milkshake will give you 7 calories, an ice cream cone 9 calories, french fries or a pizza is 10 calories, and a cheeseburger is 20 calories. Man, I want to live in that world. I really do. And mind you, this was 1982. This was 35 years ago when this game was out. Number one, the market was being saturated by third-party Atari 2600 developers which I think is really a major reason for the great North American video game crash in 1983, just too much saturation in the market. But also, 35 years ago, remember, the big thing wasn't really like watching your calories and fat shaming and stuff. So you could get away with a game in which your goal was to gain calories. Probably can't do that nowadays. But um, that's food for thought. Oh, for crying out loud, I shouldn't have said that. Food for th I apologize. That was dumb. Um, so that's a fun fact for you. There, how's that? Um, but uh, let's talk about how Sick Pickles came to be on the 7800, shall we? Sick Pickles came about really with no big fanfare. Just a simple, humble post from Breck Brixius, the developer. He posted a work-in-progress version of the ROM on June 10th, 2017, and it was very much a work in progress. There weren't any sounds, and when the game ended, it would just freeze up. To start another game, you'd actually have to turn the console off and back on, or reset the emulator, whatever you happen to be using. The next day, Breck posted an updated version of the game, and this time with the lips animated, they weren't animated before, and the game would start and stop properly, and you would no longer have to power cycle the console. There were no sounds yet still, but about a week later, Breck asked for input on what the game should sound like. And um, apparently the lips were meant to represent a monster, which I can totally see. It kind of looks like Cookie Monster to me. 
But um, as Brex Post said, and I quote, I thought perhaps when the monster eats an item, he could give an um or yum sound or maybe a chewing sound like the 2600 Jawbreaker. On June 24th, Breck posted a new version of the game and it had several changes in it. There was some improved randomization of the food items and the game would now start slow and would speed up as the monster ate more items. And there were some sounds added as well. And two days later, he posted another revision, and this one actually started a bit faster than the previous versions did. On June 27th, Breck posted an update, not with a ROM this time, though, just an update. He said that he made a few adjustments, including extending the number of speed-ups and uh, lengthening the time between the time you see scrolling messages analogous to those in fast food. Speed would increase after the monster eats 25 items, and after 50 items, there'd be a scrolling message in addition to another speed boost. He tested the game on um, a DevOS RAM cart, uh, which is a basically meant for developers to uh, work and test things with, and he was actually satisfied with what he saw. He said, for a basic fast food clone, it'll do. <laughs> so uh, He said that the next upload would likely be the final version, and if he ever decided to put the game on a cartridge, he'd add some options as a bonus for, as he said, the old schoolers. That final version he was talking about was actually posted the next day, and Breck said he cleaned up the death animation and he added some sound. So far, the game has not yet been released on a cartridge, but you can download the ROM and you can play it in an emulator, or if you have a Cuddle Cart 2, Crocodile Cart a Mateo 16-in-1 multi-cart, or if you're one of the lucky few who has a preliminary concerto prototype cartridge, you can put the ROM on one of those cartridges and actually play it on a real 7800. So about the gameplay of Sick Pickles, well, it's virtually identical to that of fast food. You control a blue mouth representing a monster, like I said before, and as the monster, you must eat everything you can except the purple pickles. They will make you sick, hence the name Sick Pickles. I don't know if this was the intention, but I couldn't help but notice. But the purple pickles strongly resemble the eggplant emoji, and uh, the regular pickles are basically a green version of that. The game looks a lot like the 2600 fast food game, complete with a black background. Your score appears on the top of the screen, and at the bottom of the screen, you see Breck's Atari age handle SiO2, or silicon dioxide. Eating a pretzel will score you 4 points, a cola is 7 points, an ice cream cone is 10 points, a cookie is 12 points, a hot dog gives you 15 points, hamburger gives you 20 points, and a green pickle is worth 100 points. Some of the messages that you'll see scroll down the screen as you make progress include, You are getting so fat. I like big butts, but nah. Obesity is a global epidemic and a moment on the lips. There might be other messages, but I've never gotten further than a moment on the lips, so I really don't know. But just like with fast food, sick pickles ends when you eat six purple pickles, at which point your monster mouth withers away. Unlike with fast food, there is no final message. The mouth just kind of melts away. And I have to say that while writing my notes for this and taking notes on the gameplay, um, 
I, I was kind of feeling guilty with these various messages because, well, uh, I'm, I'm not exactly thin myself, nor have I ever been. I have no idea what it's like to not be fat, to, to, to be quite honest with you, because I never was not fat. But um, I wrote most of my notes for this episode uh, during a visit to my local hamburger and hot dog joint. <laughs> I, I guess maybe I can justify it because that trip was immediately after a nine-mile bike commute from work, so I burnt a thousand calories anyway. <laughs> But um, judging from one of Breck's comments in the Sick Pickles thread in Atari Age, he never really intended this game to be anything fancy. And in fact, when you start the game up, it actually says, uh, what's the wording? I I think it says the not fancy version or something. (laughs) It's not anything fancy, though. Uh, It's very, the graphics are very, very rudimentary. You know, they're, they're not the most awe-inspiring thing in the world, but the fact is it doesn't mean that it's not a fun game, though. I absolutely have a lot of fun playing it. It's a Twitch game. See that? I used that word in the previous episode, so I can use it again now. (laughs) But yeah, it's a Twitch game, and it's a game that challenges you to try again, and again, and again, and uh, just one more time, because you're pretty sure you can score high. You know what? One more time. One more time. Yeah. Anyway, just download the ROM file from the Atari Age thread, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Give it a shot. See what you think. But hey, let's talk about another game that was also inspired by fast food and plays virtually the same, but actually predates Sick Pickles by about a year, give or take. And that is Fat Axel, programmed by Clark Otto Jr., also known as Franco Dragon on Atari Age. Now, fast food was just one inspiration for this game, So before I move on, I must talk about the other thing that inspired the Fat Axel game. Even though the game Fat Axel itself is based on the Atari 2600 game Fast Food, the premise behind the whole Fat Axel characterization in the game comes from an internet meme. I'm using the broader definition of meme, meaning basically just a viral internet sensation. I'm not talking about just those pictures with the white captions on them. But the Fat Axel meme started when the Winnipeg Free Press on January 4th, 2010, published photographs of Axel Rose taken by Boris Menkovich at a Guns N' Roses concert. The next day, the music blog The Gauntlet published the pictures in an article titled OMFG Axel Rose is Fat. Indeed, the pictures showed that the iconic, once svelte lead singer had, uh, well, put on a considerable amount of weight. On October 4th, 2011, Vice Media published a picture of Axel Rose from another Guns N' Roses concert in Rio with the headline of Axel Rose Got Fat. Three days later, BuzzFeed published that same picture in multiple iterations with various captions in an article called Fat Axel is Fat, and I'll put a link to that in the show notes. The captions in the pictures parodied Guns N' Roses lyrics, and uh, they involved poking fun at his weight and uh, implied overeating, basically. There were such captions like, uh, nothing lasts forever when you've got gravy in your veins, and welcome to the Chinese buffet, we got chow fun in grains. On that same day, there was a page called Fat Axel, published on Quick Meme, and the Rio photo that I mentioned before appeared on Tumblr with a caption of Knock Knock Knocking on McDonald's Door. On October 11th, a page of Fat Axel memes, and this time I'm talking about just the pictures with the white captions, well, that page showed up on a pop media culture website called UpRocks. On June 5th, 2012, Several of the previously mentioned Boris Menkovich photographs appeared on Meme Generator, 
with uh, various fat axle-related captions. And jumping ahead a couple of years on December 8th, 2013, there was a post on IGN titled, I had no idea Axl Rose got so fat. And uh, that post included the Menkovich pictures. Another jump in time here, June 5th, 2015, according to the news site Torrent Freak, Axl Rose had issued a DMCA takedown notice, the uh, Digital Millennium Copyright Act, that is, and uh, sent it to Google and Facebook. And, uh, well, the article I saw said YouTube, but YouTube is actually owned by Google, so technically it's kind of redundant. But anyway, the DMCA notice demanded the removal of those Mankovich photographs. And the next day, there was a post on Reddit that showed up, and it compared that takedown notice to what's called the Streisand effect. And uh, in case you don't know what the Streisand effect is, here's a little bit of background behind that. So you're getting the background within a background, folks. In 2002, as part of the California Coastal Records Project, a guy named Kenneth Edelman took more than 12,000 pictures up and down the California coast to document coastal erosion. Many, if not all of them, were later posted to the California Coastline official website. And one of those pictures happened to include an aerial view of what turned out to be Barbara Streisand's house. So the folks over at California Coastline got a cease and desist letter from Barbara Streisand's lawyer in February 2003, and that was followed up with a $50 million lawsuit naming Kenneth Edelman and Image Hosting Services Layer 42 and Pictopia as defendants, and that was filed on May 20th, 2003. What was the complaint? It was invasion of privacy, and uh, the complaint turned out to have exaggerated claims of how uh, the picture of Barbara Streisand's house had been downloaded by thousands upon thousands of visitors to the website. Well, it turned out um, in an investigation that the website had only 14,000 visits total and that the actual picture with Barbara Streisand's house was downloaded six times. And uh, two of those times it was from her legal team. So what happened? The judge threw out the case and ruled that Barbara Streisand's privacy had not been violated, which, uh, if you think about it, makes sense. The house was in public view in the first place. And few people would have known it was her house if nobody had said a word about it. And when word of the lawsuit got out, guess what happened? Well, the California Coastline website was suddenly flooded with nearly half a million visitors trying to find the picture. Which uh, just goes to show, if you want privacy, the worst thing you can do is draw attention to yourself. And going back to the whole Fat Axel meme, um, I just want to disclaim something here. Neither I nor Clark Otto mean any disrespect to overweight people in general. I have a feeling Axel was not being picked on because of his weight, but more because of uh, his attitude, at least his public attitude has been over the years. That is my guess. I mean, indeed, I am probably the last person in the world who should criticize anybody about weight. Uh, those of you who either know me personally or have seen pictures of me, you'll quite understand that, uh, yeah, I can't pick on anybody over that. But again, it's probably just because of just some overall negative appearances of Axl Rose's attitude and demeanor. So now that you've had a little bit of background on the Fat Axel meme, let's talk about the Fat Axel game. All you need is just a little bacon. Franco Dragon first announced the Fat Axel game on July 8th, 2016 in an Atari Age post saying that he had a small number of copies available. He programmed the game in 7800 BASIC, and he made the actual cartridges with components that Franco Dragon ordered from Albert on Atari Age. 
The gameplay is simple. You control Axel Rose's face as the character Fat Axel. Fat Axel will eat hamburgers, donuts, um, oops, um, that should be onion rings. You see, I couldn't find my manual when I recorded this segment. Um, I've since found my manual and found that, uh, yeah, those things are supposed to be onion rings. Sorry. Tacos and mugs of beer. That's right, he eats mugs of beer. And he must avoid slash and poodles. Um, the explanation for that is, uh, well, Franco Dragon recommends Googling Axl Rose hates poodles for more information. The game is over after you collide with Slash or a poodle three times, and the game ends with a message that scrolls down the screen, and the message says, Sweet Donut of Mine. Periodically, as you eat more food, you'll see a message saying you're getting fatter. And how do you score points in Fat Axel? By eating stuff. If you eat a donut, <sighs> onion ring, you get 25 points, 50 points for a taco, 75 points for a hamburger, and 100 points for a beer mug. Franco Dragon urges you to not use a Sega Genesis controller, however, as it is known to cause a repetitive game over screen. Whether a Seagull 78 or similar adapter would solve that issue, though, that's another story I really don't know. The cartridge itself, well, it's about as homebrew as you possibly can get. It's a pretty standard Atari 7800 cartridge shell, and uh, the label is a grayscale home-printed piece of paper that's kind of glued onto it. I don't know if it's uh, naturally sticky or if you used glue to stick it on the uh, cartridge, and a similar label on the end. The manual is a simple home-printed single piece of 8.5 by 11-inch piece of paper folded booklet style. And uh, the cartridge was never officially made available via the usual channels, that is the Atari Age Store, Good Deal Games, Atari Sales. Instead, you had to get the cartridge directly from Franco Dragon himself. It may or may not still be available, I'm not 100% sure right now. You have to contact him on Atari Age directly if you wish to get the game. Franco Dragon describes the game as quote-unquote a silly game to play. And he said, uh, at least until Axel Rose, whom Franco Dragon described as being well-known for his bad behavior, and I quote, threatens me with a cease and desist order. And uh, that kind of backs up my original thought that the game is made to poke fun at Axel Rose's perceived attitude and not his increased weight. But um, having said that, though, Franco Dragon did make sure he would not be served with any kind of legal papers when he produced another version of Fat Axel a graphical hack called Svengoolie. And of course, we must take a look at the TV show that influenced that remake of Fat Axel. And uh, also, this is kind of where the Halloween-y stuff comes in. Svengoolie is a long-running, weekly, family-friendly horror movie TV show. It's one of those hosted movie shows, kind of along the lines of Elvira, or some of you might be familiar with Sir Graves Ghastly. Typically, the Sven Gulli show features low-budget movies. Uh, case in point, I have a videotape from the late 90s of his showing of Santa Claus Conquers the Martians, but sometimes he shows the classic ones, too, like the Bela Lugosi Dracula. The Sven Gulli TV show actually evolved from a Friday night show called Screaming Yellow Theater, which made its debut September 18, 1970, on WFLD in Chicago. And uh, just a tiny, tiny bit of background on that, the call sign WFLD takes its initials from Field Communications, which owned the station at the time. And that's Field Communications as in Marshall Field, who was responsible for not just the department store that bore his name, but other major Chicago landmarks, such as the Field Museum of Natural History and the Merchandise Mart. 
Now, Screaming Yellow Theater started out just as a time slot to show the low-budget horror films, and it didn't really have any hosted segments. Longtime famous radio announcer Jerry G. Bishop was the booth announcer for WFLD and Screaming Yellow Theater, and he would do voiceovers when the show would break to and return from commercial breaks, and there'd be title cards with Screaming Yellow Theater and the name of the movie on them, and uh, in the background you'd hear the Link Ray instrumental Rumble playing behind it. And uh, for those of you not familiar with Rumble, um, it is currently in use in a fertilizer commercial. I don't know exactly how I'm supposed to feel about that. But anyway, eventually Jerry G. Bishop would do those voiceovers with a Dracula-style Transylvanian accent. No, back to a movie. So what he did was he took that voiceover and expanded it into a horror movie host character, and that's how he developed the character Sven Gulli, who was a green-haired hippie in green horror movie-style makeup. During Screaming Yellow Theater's run, there was a fan named Rich Coase who would write to Jerry G. Bishop with ideas for sketches, and eventually Coase was hired as a writer on the show, and he would also make periodic on-camera appearances. In 1973, Kaiser Broadcasting took over WFLD and canceled Screaming Yellow Theater and replaced it with The Ghoul, a similar style horror show based out of Cleveland, until that was canceled in 1974. In 1978, Field Communications bought WFLD back from Kaiser, which uh, prompted Jerry and Rich to discuss bringing Screaming Yellow Theater back. Well, the show indeed did make its return, but without Jerry G. Bishop as the host. The show was now called Son of Svenguli, and it launched on June 16, 1979, airing not just in its home base of Chicago, but also in field-owned stations in Boston, Detroit, Philadelphia, and San Francisco. The show now starred Rich Coase as the titular Son of Svenguli character, and Jerry G. Bishop did not return. Well, it, at least he didn't return on camera. He may have worked on the show behind the scenes, but I'm not 100% sure about that. Instead of being a horror hippie, Son of Sven Gulli had wavy long hair but wore a red shirt, tuxedo jacket with a skeleton pin, and a top hat. He didn't wear any horror movie makeup, really, but he did have uh, black makeup around his eyes. Son of Sven Gulli would speak with a slight Transylvanian accent. As son of Sven Gulli, Rich Coase would usually start the show from inside an upright coffin with the upper door open. He'd introduce the movie, tell corny jokes, read fan mail, perform song parodies, usually with lyrics based on the episode's featured movie, or he would act in short skits. Now, usually at the end of the host segments, he would tell a bad joke or make a bad pun, causing stagehands to throw rubber chickens at him, and he would then close the coffin door to shield himself. And one of Son of Senguli's popular features is called Sven Surround. Well, what's Sven Surround? During an entire segment of the movie between commercial breaks, usually it's one of the later parts of the movie. They would show the movie, but with uh, wacky sound effects added, almost like what Mystery Science Theater 3000 would eventually do. And perhaps Son of Svenguli's most famous running gag was the mention of Berwyn, a small town bordering Chicago to the southwest. When he, or really any other character in the host segment for that matter, would mention Berwyn, there would be a soundbite of a ton of people yelling, Berwyn! Berwyn! He'd actually use that soundbite when he would mention any other town name as well, really. But why did Rich Coase choose Berwyn to be the running gag? Well, that's up for debate. Uh, one story that I heard, it was probably about 20 years ago, I was talking to somebody at Beetlefest, and she mentioned Berwyn and that she only knew two people who lived in Berwyn, and one of them was Rich Coase. She knew Rich Coase. 
And I said, oh, I didn't know that he lived in Berwyn. She said, yep, and that's why he uses that as the running gag. But uh, something else I read said that Rich Coase chose Berwyn because he wanted to have his own version of the catchphrase, beautiful downtown Burbank, from the uh, TV show Ronan Martin's Laugh-In. And since Berwyn sounds enough like Burbank, he chose that name to use. Uh, now, of course, what's interesting is there actually is a Burbank that borders Chicago, not too far from Berwyn. And uh, just south of the Midway Airport. Um, and also, for what it's worth, the original Son of Svenguli fan mail address was a P.O. box in Berwyn. So maybe that had something to do with it, too. But if you're ever in the Chicago area and you are overheard mentioning Berwyn, do not be surprised if you hear a lot of people suddenly stop and say, Berwyn! Berwyn! In response. Hand to God, I swear to God this is true. Back in the summer... I am a perpetual student at the Old Town School of Folk Music. I usually take uh, an ensemble class, which means we all get together and we play songs, really. And uh, I was in the Beach Boys Ensemble. Again, I'm a Brian Wilson fan. And we actually did a little show at a uh, popular dive bar. So um, in between songs, our instructor, who was also our keyboard player, she would introduce the songs and everything. And she said something about, yeah, and I, I remember listening to this in my little home in Berwyn. And I swear to God, everybody in the place yelled, Berwyn! It's a reflex out here. But anyway, getting back to the show. WFLD was sold to Metro Media in the early 80s, but Son of Svenguli continued to be a staple of Saturday afternoon TV programming in Channel 32. That's right, when they revived it, it was Saturday afternoon, no longer Friday night. But then Fox took over WFLD in 1986 and decided to cancel Son of Svenguli because they felt it didn't fit in the new programming direction. So the final episode of Son of Svenguli aired on January 25th that year. And over the years, Rich Coase still worked in Chicago media, and uh, he actually did host a couple of shows for the Fox version of WFLD. There was one called The Coase Zone, and there was another one called Fox Kids Club. These were kids' shows, and they aired weekday afternoons on WFLD. And also, for a short time, Rich Coase was a morning drive host on the now-defunct Chicago classic rock station WCKG. WCKG now is just basically an FM repeater for the AM station WBBM. So skip ahead to 1994. Neil Sabin, who was the executive vice president of Weigel Broadcasting, resurrected the Rich Coe's Son of Sven Gulli show and aired the first return episode on December 31st that year. Only this time, longtime fans who remembered and loved Son of Sven Gulli noticed a big change. Now the show and Rich Coe's classic character were now simply called Sven Gulli. The name change actually came from Jerry G. Bishop himself, the original Sven Gulli. He told Rich Coe's that he was, and I quote, grown up enough now to no longer be just the son. In fact, I mentioned earlier that uh, Sven Gulli would sing song parodies. A few years after the show was brought back, and this was on WCIU, by the way, in Chicago, Rich Coe's, as Sven Gulli, of course, performed a parody of Smash Mouth's Walking on the Sun that had new lyrics explaining why he was no longer called Son of Sven Gulli. I heard from Jerry G. He gave permission to me. Said you can own up because now that you're a grown-up in this brand new run, they might as well stop calling me. So, hey, it's 23 years after Sven Gulli was brought back. Sven Gulli is still on the air 23 years later, despite Rich Coe suffering two heart attacks in the last 15 years or so. 
He makes very frequent personal appearances. In fact, uh, 1997, I accidentally met him at one. Uh, I Orland Square Mall was one of the two malls that I went to as a little kid, and I decided to check it out because I hadn't been there in a long time. And I just wanted to see things. And there was a store in there called TV Land, and I just wandered in there to check it out. It's a really cool store, uh, mostly souvenirs from TV shows, mostly T-shirts. They were King of the Hill T-shirts. Uh, one thing I didn't get that I regret because the store's long gone now, they had no ma'am T-shirts that Al Bundy would wear for Married with Children. They had stuff like that. And um, the day I went in there, there was a huge crowd, and I was like, what's going on here? And um, I just happened to look to my left, and I realized I was standing right in front of an autograph table with Rich Coase in his son of Sven Gulli costume. He was doing a meet and greet. And uh, I just stopped dead in my tracks, and I ran all over the store looking for something for him to autograph, and I found a rack full of Sven Gulli t-shirts. So I grabbed one and hightailed it back in line. And uh, I got to tell you, I saw how he interacted with fans, and I'm talking fans of all ages. Like, there are middle-aged fans, there were little kids who literally could barely talk. He was so good to everybody there. He was the nicest guy. And from what people tell me who've actually known him personally, he Rich Coe's really is a nice guy in real life. He wasn't putting on a show. But uh, at the time, I was a weekend disc jockey for a local radio station, and I knew that my program director knew Rich. So uh, when it came my turn in line, I name-dropped him. And I said, hey, Rich, nice to meet you. Uh, and I said, hey, my friend Mike Tomano says hi. He's like, oh, my God, you know Mike? Tell him hi for me. I need to call him. I haven't talked to him in forever. So, so yeah, I got to meet Sven Gulli and get his autograph. I still have the autograph shirt, too. I've worn it many times. The permanent marker is still there. And uh, I'll post a picture of it in the show notes. Since the return of Sven Gulli in 1994, not only has Rich Coe's been doing his regular Sven Gulli show, but he also hosted a show for a few years called Stooge Palooza, which was a Saturday night showing of Three Stooges films. And uh, in the host segments, Rich Coase would give a brief history of whatever Three Stooges film he happened to be showing at that particular moment. And from what I could tell, he tended to favor Shemp over Curly, but hey. I don't think Stooge Palooza is still on, but Sven Gulli is still going strong. It just moved to the Saturday night 8 p.m. time slot, much to a lot of fans' chagrin, of course, because it used to be on at 10 p.m., but of course people have to be reminded that he originally was on on Saturday afternoons back in the 80s. <laughs> but right now, Sven Gulli is more popular than ever, especially since its station WCIU has become part of the MeTV network, which means that now Sven Gulli is airing all over the country. Sadly, Jerry G. Bishop died of a heart attack at age 77 on September 13th, 2013, and it was a obviously huge personal loss for Rich Coase. He lost his friend and his mentor, but uh, longtime Sven Gulli fans are more than happy with the job that Rich Coase has been doing, keeping his friend and mentor's legacy alive. And uh, I just need to interject my own opinion here. You cannot be a native of the Chicago area and uh, not be a, a fan of Sven Gulli. You just can't. Well, at least if you're 50 years old or younger, I should say. I don't watch Sven Gulli regularly. Usually depends on what movie he's featuring. But when I do watch, I am never not entertained. I always laugh. It's always a fun watch. And he also shares a lot of good uh, details about the movies. Anyway, seriously, Sven Gulli is really an important part of Chicago, just as important as the Sears Tower, Deep Dish Pizza, and Lakeshore Drive. And uh, hand to God, I'm not even kidding. I actually welled up a little bit when I typed that in my notes. I, one year, uh, not terribly long ago, my wife bought me a Sven Gulli t-shirt that was a mock-up of a fictitious horror movie called It Came From Berwyn. Anyway, now that I gave you a history of Sven Gulli, let's have a look at the game that Sven Gulli inspired. Uh -huh. 
I first became aware of the Svenguli game for the Atari 7800 at Midwest Gaming Classic just this year. Uh, oh, and if you're listening to this in the future, I'm talking 2017. But how exactly did I become aware of it? Well, uh, my friend Jimmy G and I had a table there promoting Pie Factory Podcast, and um, I had my Atari 7800 out with some homebrews for people to try out. And yeah, Pie Factory is specifically an arcade game podcast, but uh, Dan Lucen, who's one of the guys who runs Midwest Gaming Classic, he told us, uh, guys, if you really want to attract people, you should have something for them to do, like games to play or something. So we decided, okay, so we decided we're going to highlight 7,800 homebrews, especially because so many of them are based on arcade games. Well, a guy who saw our table showed us a homebrew cartridge he made for the 7,800 based on Sven Gulli. Jim and I, naturally, we like Sven Gulli, so when he asked if we wanted to see it in action, we said, oh yeah, absolutely. So turned out it was Franco Dragon from Atari Age, and uh, I was happy to meet him because I had actually bought a few of his homebrews by then, including the original Fat Axel. So I played a few rounds of the Sven Gulli game. Uh, Rich Coase, in his Sven Gulli costume, of course, was a guest at Midwest Gaming Classic last year. And Franco Dragon wanted to show him that he made a 7800 game. Uh, I didn't get to see Sunguli at the Midwest Gaming Classic. I was like, you know what? There are a lot of people here. I got my chance to meet them before. I'm going to let somebody else. I'm going to. I don't want to make things uh, harder for anybody else. Let let other people have a chance. But. May 27, 2017, in the viewer mail segment of the show, Svenguli actually showed the homebrew cartridge that Franco Dragon gave him. Atari Age user Geek Dragon, who saw the segment, asked about it on the Atari Age forum. Franco Dragon responded with a video of the gameplay. Now, instead of controlling Fat Axel, the player controlled Svenguli's face. And, uh, in my opinion, the Svenguli face looked a lot more like Svenguli than the Fat Axel face looked like Axel Rose, but hey, that's just my own opinion. But instead of food items, the goal was to have Svenguli pick up various classic horror-related items. Um, the face of Doug Graves, who was Svenguli's longtime musical director, often appears on the show in musical segments, uh, and Doug Graves was played by Doug Scharf. And also among the items Svenguli would have to pick up in the game is a character called Kerwin, who is a strange, kind of lizard-like puppet who, during every show, presents a joke submitted by a viewer. And on Svenguli's official website, you can see the uh, joke segments with Kerwin. As the player's score increases, there was a message that appeared periodically saying, you're getting funnier. Svenguli must avoid rubber chickens, and the game ends after he gets hit with three rubber chickens, at which point the word Berwin scrolls down the screen. The cartridge artwork featured a color picture of Rich Coase as Svenguli on the set of the TV show, standing in front of his new coffin prop. He recently donated his old one to the Museum of Broadcast Communications in Chicago, where it is a part of a Svenguli exhibit. And in the picture on the cartridge, Svenguli is holding a rubber chicken. And below the picture is the text saying, Program by Clark Otto Jr., 2017. 2017 Clark Otto Jr. I'm guessing there's supposed to be a copyright symbol there, but it's missing. And it also says, Svenguli is property of Rich Coe's promotional copy only. Franco Dragon sent an email to WCIU to ask permission to distribute the game. And he followed up with a snail mail letter sent to the Svenguli fan address as well. And he eventually did get a reply from WCIU saying, Hey, thank you for your interest, but unfortunately, we don't grant any use licenses outside of WCIU and MeTV. So Franco Dragon honored the response he got, and he decided not to make any copies available either for free or for money. And yes, it means unless you happen across Franco Dragon's own copy or the copy he gave to Rich Coase, 
you will unfortunately not be able to play the Sven Gulli game on the 7800, and he never posted a ROM, and I'm guessing just to respect the wishes of WCIU, he's not going to do that either. But I guess uh, you can still play Sven Gulli in a way if you have Fat Axel and just pretend that uh, instead of Axel Rose, you're controlling Sven Gulli and you're picking up Skulls and Kerwin and uh, Doug Graves. And uh, there you go, you have the game. Wow, just think about that. This episode packed quite a punch. Three homebrews. Uh, actually, no, 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 no. This episode will be talking about four homebrews. <gasps> yes, four homebrews. But the catch is only three of them are actually games. I should talk about another homebrew that's not a game at all, but simply just a very short demo. On Halloween 2007, Gambler172 posted a demo that was basically a Halloween greeting with a shout out to various people on Atari Age, including Albert, who owns Atari Age. And um, I wasn't shouted out though, but then again, I wasn't a 7800 person for very long yet, but that's okay. <laughs> and uh, the demo consisted of basically just a big drawing of a jack-o'-lantern with some music looped over and over. Um, I don't know what the music is. I don't know if it's an original tune or if it's from uh, a movie. I can definitely tell you it is not from Friday the 13th or the movie Halloween. It's not the Exorcist theme because I know Tubular Bells very well, and it's not that. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm not really sure. I can also rule out Child's Play, but I'm not a big fan of horror movies, really. So if it's from a horror movie, I really don't know. But it's a, just a very simple demo, and uh, it's got the jack-o'-lantern, and where the eyes and nose and mouth are cut out, there's kind of a color cycling thing going on. There's a message that scrolls across the bottom of the screen that says, It is 31.10.2007, and there's a Happy Halloween greeting with the aforementioned shout-outs. And interestingly, at Trevor's request, five years later, there was a new version made, that doesn't have the date in it so that it could be used on Halloween for any year. And it literally was no longer dated. And, um, that's really all I have to say about that. I will put a link to that discussion thread in the show notes and you can actually download different versions of the ROM yourself. Check them out. And, uh, so there, there's some more Halloween content for you. It is a homebrew technically, but not a game. As I always do, I asked for feedback on the featured games, and I was actually surprised I got a couple of responses because uh, these aren't the most well-known homebrews, like I said before. But um, I heard from Gambler172, who, by the way, is also the programmer behind the Halloween greeting that I recently mentioned, and uh, Walter says, both two nice homebrews, not absolutely top, but worth to play from time to time. And uh, short and sweet. Thank you, Walter. And Jinx says, I am more of a roof pooper kind of guy. <laughs> and I couldn't help but I, I, I had to respond. I said, yeah, me too. <laughs> because uh, I, I've mentioned this before. I mean, yeah, I just turned 43, but I think I'm still eight years old. Because when I heard about Franco Dragon's roof pooper game, I was like, oh, my God, tell me more. Tell me more. Because... I'm amused easily by childish things. In the same thread, I mentioned how uh, I wish we could get Tinkle Pit and Uncle Pooh 
ported to the Atari 7800. In case uh, you don't know what those games are, they're very obscure arcade games. Tinkle Pit is a 1993 Namco arcade game that was released only in Japan. And Uncle Pooh was a hacked version of another game that was very, very obscure in the arcades. I don't, good luck finding one of those suckers. And of course, there's the Atari 2600 Homebrew Explosive Diarrhea, which of course I have in my collection. And I got an email from TrekMD. I believe uh, that, that's uh, Eugenio, right? Uh, anyway, um, TrekMD says, hi, Sean. Well, hi, TrekMD. I hope this finds you well. Since I'm behind in giving feedback, I decided to send an email instead of posting an Atari.io. Things have finally gotten back to normal for me after Irma, but I still have to deal with the actor effect of Maria as most of my family lives in Puerto Rico. They are still without power or water, though I have to be glad they are doing well and they do have generators and stored water to keep going. It will take Puerto Rico quite some time to recover. I'm collecting food, water, and supplies in my office to send to Puerto Rico through one of the foundations. We'll keep at it as long as we need to. On a happier note, listening to your podcast as well as Ferg's and Shinto's has been a nice distraction through this whole mess. Oh, thank you for uh, saying that. I'm glad uh, we could be of uh, some help. <laughs> anyway, he goes on to say, so on that note, here's my feedback for Time Salvo, Circus Atari Age, Sick Pickles, and Fat Axel. Time Salvo. The future seems to be a rather bleak place if we go by what happens in video games and movies. Not only that, but robots seem to be the dominant force in more than one version of the future. First, there was Robotron 2084, where robots were hunting the last surviving human family. You had to save these last humans from the robots in a rather frenetic kind of action. Now we have Time Salvo, a future version of Earth where the humans have devolved into a feeble race called the Eloi that is hunted by their own creation, the Morlocks. As a time traveler, you lose your sweet Eloy friend, Weena, to a Morlock attack, and now you will avenge her. Such is the premise of Time Salvo, a rather fun and challenging game on the 7800. The game has you controlling the time traveler as he attacks the Morlocks and picks up the surviving Eloy. There's a catch, though. The Eloy will stay behind and follow you as you move in the maze where the action takes place. This means that they are open to attacks from the Morlocks, so you have to make every effort to protect them as you also destroy the enemies. The Morlocks start off as robots from Robotron, but you will find yourself attacked by other recognizable characters. Some of these Morlocks look like the robots from Berserk, while others look like some of the aliens from Space Invaders. No matter what they look like, they are deadly to both the humanoids and the time traveler. Time Salvo's action really gets crazy as you move about the maze attacking the robots while also protecting the trailing Eloy. There are some power-ups to help you defeat the robots, but using these does require some strategy. The game is excellent as it is, but then it is also enhanced by the Atari Vox, which gives it nice speech and lets you save your high score. Unfortunately, you cannot use the Atari Vox if you want to play the game using two joysticks at once, which is the best way to play this game. This is really one awesome game that should not be missed. And I'm going to interrupt myself here and address this one portion of the feedback here. Uh, I totally missed that thing about Wiena, didn't I? I don't remember mentioning Wiena in uh, the uh, Time Salvo episode, but, uh, but TrekMD gives a wonderful description of the awesomeness that is Time Salvo. Absolutely. And, uh, like, and I mentioned this in the previous episode, but technically you can use the Atari Vox and two joysticks at once if you have the proper splitter, but uh, it actually kind of changes the game a little bit. You don't have the, the speech quite as much anymore, and you get weird sounds. 
and the game will act kind of unpredictably. So the way I look at it, that's a third variation of the game. <laughs> and uh, moving on to further TrekMD's um, email here. Super Circus Atari Age. There are upgrades to games, and then there are upgrades to games. What am I referring to? Let me explain. Back in the late 70s, a company called Exidy released an arcade game called Circus. This game has the player control two clowns who must jump using a seesaw to blow up the balloons aligned at the top of the screen. The original arcade game had simple black and white graphics with a color overlay over the balloons. Atari then ported this game to the then VCS, that is Video Computer System, aka Atari 2600, using color graphics that were still pretty simple as the clowns were essentially stick figures and the balloons were rows of squares. The game is a take on the breakout formula, and one that was quite fun and addictive. Let's move forward in time and come to 2017, the year Bob DiCrescenzo's updated version is released for the 7800 with the name Super Circus Atari Age. And what an appropriate title that is. This game takes the original formula and expands on it. Now you have power-ups that help you clear the balloons, affect the speed of the balloons, change how the clowns and the balloons interact, give you an extra life, or even provide a safety net. There are multiple options selected from a menu on the title screen for both single and two-player action, alternating or simultaneous, selecting how the balloons are replenished and even how the game looks. Did I mention the superb update to the original stick figure graphics? No? Well, let me tell you. The modernized version of the graphics gives you nicely detailed clowns that are well animated and done in multiple colors. The balloons have shading also, and everything is just nice and smooth. You can, however, choose the classic look and play the game as if you were playing the 2600 version. Sound is also superb. The game does have pokey sound and plays an original tune that is quite appropriate for the circus theme. As if all this weren't enough, you can play the game with a joystick, the paddle, or the driving controllers. My preference is with the paddle controllers, though. Yeah, me too. Overall, I can easily say that Super Circus Atari Age is a must-have title on the 7800. In fact, I'd say that Super Circus is to Circus what Tempest 2000 is to Tempest. And again, I'm going to interrupt uh, the feedback here and respond to that point. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, totally agree with everything you just said there. And uh, what more can I say? It's really tricking. Do you think you should host this podcast? You put it in much more exciting terms than I can. <laughs> but that was, that's that's a fantastic description. Great review. And uh, what more do I have to say? And going back to TrekMD's feedback, Sick Pickles. There are many games in the Atari 2600's library that offer simple but addicting gameplay. One such game is Fast Food. All you have to do is eat the food that comes your way while avoiding the purple pickles that will make you sick. Eat too many purple pickles and your game ends. The game was never ported to the Atari 7800, but have no fear. Atari Age member SiO2 Silicon Dioxide decided to fix that oversight by creating a clone of fast food called Sick Pickles. Quite the appropriate name since eating the purple pickles makes you sick. You control a set of lips with teeth on the screen as various food items, burgers, green pickles, hot dogs, cookies, ice cream cones, pretzels, carbonated soda, and the sickening purple pickles move on the screen at various speeds for you to, well, eat. The game is a nice graphical update with a more detailed mouth and new food items, but also with newer messages between levels that are funny or even touch on reality. Obesity is a global epidemic, for example. Sound effects are minimal, but they do the trick, and there's even a bit of music on the title screen. And interrupting again. Yeah, I don't know if I really 
did a good job of bringing that little that that one point out that you mentioned of uh, the messages are funny or even touch on reality and yeah obesity is a global epidemic you are listening to that global epidemic talk right now <laughs> but yeah it's uh, that, that is a, that is a good point like even maybe you could get away with doing a game like that today if it does include those uh, those kind of reality messages right there especially with the nowadays all the push toward education at least in american media because um, remember Remember in the 80s, uh, we'd watch uh, Saturday morning cartoons, and usually the highlight was Looney Tunes for at least an hour. And uh, yeah, you don't get that anymore. Now, if, you've turned the st- if you turn the TV on on Saturdays, it's going to be all these educational shows. And, um, and I, th- I think like Animal Planet, ha- like they'll show something that looks like, oh, it's going to be a bunch of puppies. And it turns out it's like, well, here's how an animal's immune system works under these circumstances. It's like, ah, oh, man, just give me some puppies. <laughs> But yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe sick pickles or in games like that, if they do provide those messages would be considered acceptable. I don't know. But, oh, by the way, the, you, you mentioned how there are a little bit more graphical details and, uh, yeah, the mouth, for example, I've more than one person has said that, that the way that mouth is, it gives the game kind of a jawbreaker feel. And yeah, I have to agree with that. Uh, and uh, I'm going to move on to Trek MD's final point here. Fat Axel. This is another fast food clone on the 7800. This one has very different graphics, however, as it is based on memes of Axel Rose from Guns N' Roses. Apparently, Axel doesn't like the pictures on Google that show him being fat, but that's the material that has been used to create the game. As in fast food, or Sick Pickles, the other clone by Silicon Dioxide, the goal is to eat food items while avoiding items that make you sick. Instead of a mouth, here you control Fat Axel himself, as he eats hamburgers, tacos, and beer. Fat Axel hates poodles, so he must avoid any poodles that head his way. He also has to avoid Slash, the guitarist from Guns N' Roses. Hitting the poodles or Slash will cause Fat Axel to lose a life. If you lose all your lives, Fat Axel won't get fatter, and the game ends... Eh, maybe that's not a bad thing, though. <laughs> the game is simple and has very basic sounds. The graphics are very different here as you control Axel's head instead of an animated mouth, the food items, though, are very nicely done with multicolor sprites. The hamburgers, pizzas, cups, donuts, onion rings have more detail than the food items on fast food or sick pickles. Despite having similar gameplay to fast food, it doesn't feel as fun to play. And right there, I think that's the first time I had kind of a, a negative review of a uh, of a game right there. And uh, I can't really say that I blame Trek MD for that. I, re- I really can't because the, the graphics do seem kind of a little bit over simple for what, um, what you would think the Atari 7800 could do. But I think I mentioned this before, but yeah, if I did a game on the 7800 and again, I mentioned before, I'm actually considering it and I've actually started kind of drafting something like I'm actually going to start it in JavaScript and then convert it to a 7800 basic if I ever get around to it. But I'll tell you more as that happens, but I guarantee you anything I do is still going to look like garbage. Cause I, I cannot do graphics at all. I'm, I'm more of a, a sound person, I think, but uh, yeah, I mean, really there's not much more to say because really fat Axel and sick pickles are essentially the same. In fact, when sick, sick pickles came out after fat Axel came out and I actually uh, private messaged Breck and I said, Hey, did, did you happen to work with Franco dragon on this? And he said, no, I did it all myself. And the thing is, I did not know fast food. I had never played fast food before. So, and I, I was like, man, this is basically the same game as Fat Axel. He said, well, we probably both based the game on fast food. So that's probably why they look so similar. I was like, oh, okay. 
Okay, but TrekMD, thanks again for your feedback. You always give some great, insightful feedback, and I'm very, very appreciative of it, especially with what you and your family have been going through. I hope, I hope to God that things get back to normal for, for all of you ASAP. And, uh, yeah, uh, and those of you who can help out with the hurricane victims, please do so. That would be really, really great. Uh, there are many charities that will, um, help out the hurricane victims. Like for example, I mentioned before how I gave, uh, this month's Patreon payout to international medical Corps. They're taking up collections for people in Puerto Rico and the Caribbean and other areas affected by hurricane Maria. Um, if you go to charitynavigator.org, you can find various uh, confirmed legitimate charities that you can help out. So if you could do that, if you can spare a few bucks and do that, that'd be really amazing, really amazing. Help out. Uh, I think I said this before, you know, be good to yourselves and be good to each other because really we're all we have is each other. So help out your fellow people and, um, you know, see if you can make even the, even the slightest difference for the better. I can kind of, imagine what Trek MD is going through right now because, uh, one of my wife's coworkers, uh, he was, uh, born in Puerto Rico and I think his family is still out there. And, um, uh, he hadn't heard from his father in a long time since the hurricane. And the only reason that he knew his father was okay was he happened to find a picture of him that was taken, uh, fairly recently. And he eventually did get in touch with him. And, uh, and, uh, I guess, uh, I guess his father is okay and everything. Um, but uh, it's that's some scary stuff, some scary stuff that's uh, that was going on down there, and I hope things get better as soon as possible. And there's a uh, on WGN in Chicago, their morning news crew. There's a uh, they have a reporter named uh, Anna Bellaval, and her she's from Puerto Rico, and most of her family's still out there. And uh, I know she was practically a mess during that whole thing. I mean, she held it together really great on TV, but uh, she was off camera. Like she, she'd post on Facebook about how much of a mess she's, she's been just worrying sick about everybody. I do believe her parents are okay. They didn't lose their house or anything. They made it through. But of course she didn't know for a long time because there was no electricity, no phones. And, uh, I'm going to shut up before I start sounding like the closing verse of the Ballad of Gilligan's Isle. But, um, thank you again for your feedback, Trek ND. And, uh, God, I'm surprised I actually got any feedback at all for fat Axel and especially sick pickles, which was never put on a cartridge. So thank you, uh, Trek MD and Jinx and Walter for, uh, taking the time to respond. What's the one carpet company that offers 72 hour delivery on your choice of a telephone or a shampoo or free with any order? Vampire carpets, right? Try empire. So what do I feel about these games? Well, I'm glad you asked. The games are both very, very, very simple. Uh, they actually feel more like 2600 games. Well, to be fair, that's what they are. They're, they're a 2600 game converted to 7800. So, but uh, I got to say, I had fun playing them. They're both very kind of challenging games that make you want to play them again and see if you can beat your previous record. Now, if I had to choose between Fat Axel and Sick Pickles, it's hard to say because they each have their own unique little traits, I guess. I would have to say overall sick pickles is better to look at and um, it feels a little bit better to play simply because uh, fat axle starts out kind of slow and the speed picks up very gradually, but sick pickles, it starts off a little bit faster and you can definitely see a more of a speed increase a little bit sooner than in fat axle. But there's something that I do like about fat axle that's not present in sick pickles. And that's that at some point, you'll see 
a couple of the food items kind of bounce up and down, kind of adding a new challenge to it. I think uh, I think it was the onion ring. I'm not 100% sure off the top of my head. But either way, they're both fun to play, and I commend Breck and Clark for uh, doing these games because, um, again, I had fun. I had fun. And, I, and uh, I love having a cartridge in my collection for the 7800 that actually says Fat Axel on it. So, uh, yeah, I'm thankful for that. And um, that wraps up episode 22 of the Atari 7800 Homebrew Podcast. I hope it was uh, enjoyable for you. And I got to say, this is re- interestingly, though, is even though these games that I talked about and the Halloween demo aren't the most well-known, most famous homebrews out there, they're pretty obscure, really. I think this is the episode I had the absolute most fun putting together and i was really really excited to get it done and i hope you found some enjoyment out of it interestingly enough because like i wanted to go with kind of a halloween tie-in i never liked halloween i never did i i really didn't even as a little kid part of it is that i'm i never really was a candy eater i got fat from other things not candy like probably i'm I'm more of a savory kind of person i guess (laughs) i just never liked it i didn't like the idea of having to First of all, decide on what kind of costume to have and then putting on the costume and sweating in the neighborhood and boring my dad or my brother while while they were taking me around. You know, I it, I just didn't relish that. And usually my costumes when I was a little kid, at least usually my costumes were those kind of uh, you remember those store bought things where there was a mask that you strap on with a rubber band and then the rest of the quote unquote costume was just uh it may or may not have fit properly depending on how lucky you were that that year, but it just, it, it just had like a collage of pictures on the rest of the costume. It wasn't even like if you were going say as Mickey mouse, you'd have a Mickey mouse mask and then the pants and the top you were wearing just had like various pictures of Mickey mouse. It was kind of stupid. I guess maybe they were cheap enough. I don't know. but uh, And I, I just never cared for Halloween. I don't know. I I never looked forward to it, and I still don't. But uh, I can totally understand people having fun with it, and I do my best not to uh, be a bring down about it. But uh, anyway, that was um, episode 22. And uh, thank you all for listening, and thank you to the following people for making it all happen with their Patreon sponsorship. Thank you to Gray Defender. Thank you to Jimmy G and Ed Laden Controllers. Thank you to Kyle Etter, Richard Valdez, and Richard Grounds. If you also would like to be thanked for making the show possible financially, then you can go to patreon.com slash homebrew78 and sign up to uh, donate a specific amount of money to this podcast every month. And that's spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N, by the way, Patreon. If you wish to reach me over email, that is homebrew78 at fab4it.com. And fab4it is spelled F-A-B, then the actual number four, and then it.com. Show notes are located on the web at homebrew78.fab4it.com. Twitter handle is homebrew78, and my YouTube channel is homebrew7800. And I recently put in a video detailing how to use a Mateos 16-in-1 cartridge with the Mac operating system Sierra and High Sierra. There's a little bit of extra stuff you have to do with that, so I have a demonstration on how to deal with those operating systems. And uh, coming up next, um, episode 23, you're going to talk about Moon Cresta. 
And then episode 24, Crystal Quest featuring Bentley Bear, a brand new one. So it's been wonderful talking to you live from the city of Chicago. And can't wait to talk to you again real soon. 